welcome to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, April the 3rd, really our third week into the COVID-19 outbreak that has really changed all of our lives here in New Mexico. We're committed to keeping you up to date and getting you good information about all facets of the pandemic here in New Mexico. Good time to remind you that we have another podcast we're working on with media partners, KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. This was our Your New Mexico Government podcast we started during the legislative session. It has been repurposed right now to bring you all things COVID-19. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Your NM Gov or Your NM Government. Those are daily and a great way to keep up to date on things. This week in the show, one of our big questions was, as we get more diagnosed cases, we have uh, more deaths, up to five at the time of this recording, in New Mexico from COVID-19. One of the big lingering questions is how prepared are our hospitals and the healthcare system in general to handle the surges that are coming our way? We wanted to turn to Dr. David Scrace. He's the Secretary of the Department of Human Services, and he's on the response team for this, has a good pulse of this. He sat down with Matt Grubbs, our senior producer, talk about what the situation looks like. Dr. Grace, thanks for taking uh, just a few minutes to update us on on what's been going on. Uh, First of all, uh, let's talk about testing capacity. How has that grown um, and how quickly is it ramping up and where do you want to see it? Well, the, I've been involved with testing under Secretary Kunkel, who's the de, uh, Secretary of the Department of Health. Uh, we have both worked on that. She is the lead right now, but New Mexico actually has the most testing per population per day, per COVID day of anywhere in the whole world. And so under the leadership of Michelle Luan Grisham, who is like a dog with a bone on this one, she is pushing testing, pushing expanding testing capacity. She's working with the laboratories, with the state lab, Tricor lab, looking for other options for capacity. But we have uh, started this, I think, with the ability to do about 600 tests a day. That is more than doubled, and there are plans to expand it even further. That's the laboratory capacity, but there's also the field testing and. <clears throat> You know what we know of as the drive-through testing, which is our state model for that. We don't want people to go to healthcare facilities. I heard yesterday that there's 44 testing sites in New Mexico going up to 66. The Department of Health, Public Health Office in every county will be offering testing, um, I think by the end of this week or early next week. And so we've had the best testing response literally of anybody in the world. And uh, there's a lot of incredible cooperation between the public and private sector here to make this work. We're, I'll, I'll t- probably talk about that the whole time, but in almost every area, we're seeing government, state lab, private labs coming together to solve this problem and get as much testing out there as we possibly can. Um, is, is part of the reason, I know that you've relaxed the requirements um, to get a test, and we'll have a link to those on our website, but is part of the reason that we're all in our, in our homes and, and limiting movements because um, we weren't able to roll out those those tests earlier? No, that really has nothing to do with it. Um, testing, uh, number one, gives uh, uh, folks, uh, you know, fairly quick feedback about whether or not they have COVID. But if you go, if you're sick enough or have a exposure like travel or you're high risk and you fall in the category where you're getting a test, you should be self-isolating for 14 days, whether you have the test or not. And I don't think we were slow at all rolling out. It was quite rapid. There were some long lines that one weekend because demand exceeded uh, capacity, but we have, a, we have a one to 2% positive rate. And I think it, all in all, we're doing extremely well. We're staying at home because we know based on evidence, it's the only profound way to control the spread of this virus. You talked yesterday um, during uh, the governor's briefing um, about the the doubling rate. And I think it's difficult. Um, Most of us just don't think exponentially. We think in in a line. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important to to let people know that 
um, we have to slow down the spread? Uh, the primary reason for slowing down the spread is to, and this has become almost trite now, but to flatten the curve. That high bell-shaped curve completely overwhelms the delivery system. If we can flatten that curve, we have the capacity to take care of those uh, less people actually over a longer period of time. So that's that's incredibly important. The doubling time, actually more good news. It's been four days uh, since we were at 190. And uh, if we have another, if we have, I think something like 60 or less cases reported today, our doubling time will now be five days. And that's amazing. It, it, you've done the math, you know, so just a doubling time in 30 days, if it's five, uh, it doubles uh, six times. If the doubling right. time, like in New York is two, it doubles 15 times. Millions of, uh, you know, that multiplies out to a very high difference and you've already done the math correctly. So it's, uh, the people staying at home reduces the spread of the disease. It, the doubling time is based on the incubation period of the virus, 5.1 days, we think, and the average number of people infected. Staying home reduces the average number of people that get infected or that can infect others. And it also therefore lengthens the doubling time. Uh, you've said that 90% uh, of the state's uh, ICU or critical care beds are in Albuquerque. I would imagine that's a huge challenge for you. Uh, how are you working um, to connect some of these rural providers, um, whether it's just in rural parts of, of the state proper or on the Navajo Nation, that sort of thing, to connect them to these resources in Albuquerque? Uh, well, we have, I mentioned yesterday, we have the medical advisory team that's now up and running, headed by Michael Richards from the university, who is his whole career is actually, other than being the COO of the University Health Sciences Center, has been in disaster management. He's the head of the team. He's brought in Clay Holderman, who's the COO of Presbyterian. He's brought in uh, Troy Greer, who's the uh, hospital leader, the CEO of Loveless Hospital. And they're literally holed up for two weeks, six feet apart, uh, up in a, in a facility we're using right now that is empty because those folks are working from home, planning out the strategy. The, uh, there are also regional hospitals, including hospitals of Farmington, Santa Fe, uh, Las Cruces, and, and Roswell, uh, sort of a hub and spoke, hub and spoke model where the smaller hospitals will feed to those regional hospitals. The regional hospitals will feed to Albuquerque. Transportation is a huge part of that. Uh, we've done a needs assessment. Capacity assessments are going on this week. Individual calls from these really expert hospital leaders out to the hub and spoke uh, hospitals. The, the spoke hospitals will be contacting their hospitals. We're really trying to bring the delivery system together into a single delivery system for the purpose of this uh, this upcoming pandemic surge. You're expecting, um, based on the modeling that you've looked at, to see the peak uh, in infection rate uh, when? Well, <clears throat> there are a lot of models out there, and there are a lot of uh, ways of looking at it. Uh, I think that I would predict that we'll see a surge here this week in some areas of the state. I think our data suggests that um, we may see a surge more in the middle of the month or toward the end of the month. Remember, as people stay home and as that doubling time increases, that will move the peak out further and further, which allows even more time to get ready, more time to get additional equipment, ventilators, for personal protective equipment, which I'll call PPE from now on. And so, so this doubling time really could be a great opportunity for the state to get additional resources to deal with the surge and to slow the angle of that curve so we're, we don't immediately overwhelm the healthcare system as we see on TV has happened in other states. Sure. Uh, as you speak to the hospitals around the state and they uh, talk to you about things like adding beds in, in tents or temporary locations, um, is there sort of a, a best practice as <clears throat> to what you want those beds to be used for? Do you want them to be used for um, standard uh, medical issues and leave the COVID to the emergency rooms? How does that work? Well, there uh, there's some principles that guide the decision-making around that that 
Mike Richards has taught me. And the first principle is number one, we want people as much as possible to be cared for in their own communities within the limits of the resources there. So in other words, if uh, someone just needs general hospital care and can be cared for in a rural hospital, there's absolutely no reason to transfer them to a spoke hospital or the, or the hub in Albuquerque. Number two, that's really important as well is that in, uh, <clears throat> in these situations, we do not wanna take care of people who are on ventilators in tents. And then the third thing is, I think we can lift up the capabilities of those rural hospitals more than they might think by a number of uh, mechanisms. One is teaching uh, about COVID through Project ECHO and we're sponsoring and working with them every Friday for physicians at noon. Uh, and then they have multiple conferences going on. And number two is I think, you know, that one of the big dilemmas in this is a lot of our older physicians, and I guess I'm in that group, you know, really shouldn't be going into hospitals if they're over 60, they're at much, much higher risk. But there's absolutely no reason that a retired pulmonologist can't sit in their living room and walk a primary care physician in a rural hospital through basic care or talk about the need for transfer. And so we're really gonna go to an all hands on deck model Trading, trying to involve every care provider in the state in some way or another. And our phones basically ring off the hook uh, from retired physicians who want to figure out a way to help. And particularly if they don't have to uh, go in at age 75 into an intensive care unit with, uh, covered with PPE. So we think we've got a great resource there and, and the volunteer spirit in the medical community has been wonderful. The medical society has reached out multiple times. How can we help? How can we help you organize? And so we're taking advantage of all that. Dr. Scrace, we appreciate your time and your work, and we know you have a lot more to do. We look forward to hearing from you again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate your interest. And, and can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Uh, for all those folks out there, please, please stay at home. Even if the grocery stores have special hours for seniors and you're a senior, it's better to have a teenager in your neighborhood take orders or you call in those orders and have someone pick those groceries up and leave them on your porch like the governor mentioned yesterday. There's nothing that will help the medical personnel in the state more than simply all of us staying at home, staying at home as I am today. Thank you. Thank you. It seems there are almost constant changes to the way we're being asked to do things in response to the COVID-19 outbreak from a government standpoint, from the school standpoint. It's just a constant adjustment. So right now we have a virtual line panel talking about some of the latest developments in the stay-at-home order and the response in the state. Also, they talk a little bit about the schools and how people are trying to cope with the closed schools for the rest of this year which is a good time to mention the APS at Home program. This is something we are doing in partnership with APS here at New Mexico PBS starting this coming Monday, April 6th. Each morning from 8 to noon, we will have uh, educational programming produced by APS. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we'll focus on education, or uh, English, excuse me, and on Tuesday, Thursday, science and math. It starts from 8 to 9 with kindergarten and first grade. And then um, basically learning language learning skills from 9 to 10. 10 to 11 is second and third grade. And 11 to 12 is fourth and fifth grade. This is an elementary school approach. Obviously, it's much more difficult when you think about middle school and high school and all the different schedules and classes. But this is a partnership we're really proud to be able to participate in. Again, Monday through Friday, the APS at home, 8 a.m. to noon, on KME channel 5.1, you'll be able to see this APS content curriculum based. Also, you can go to the APS YouTube page by just going to YouTube and searching for Albuquerque Public Schools. You'll be able to get those lessons there as well. Or head to NewMexicoPBS.org, and there's a bunch of information for you there as well. But right now, here is the line, which this week includes Giovanni Rossi, Laura Sanchez, and Crystal Ciarza. assembled a virtual line panel once again to talk about the latest in the COVID-19 news. I want to welcome an attorney and line regular Laura Sanchez. She's back with us this week. Hello, Laura. Hi. 
Want to welcome also President of Collective Action Strategies, Giovanna Rossi. She returns. Good to see you. Hi. And Crystal Ciarza, she is from Ciarza Social Digital, founder of the company, and she joins us as well. Crystal, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. All right, guys, here's what's going on. This is starting to get real. It's sinking in here in New Mexico. The numbers are climbing, and our death toll is inching up as well. Uh, we have hundreds of cases, no doubt about it. And the governor says New Mexico only gets a C grade when it comes to social distancing. I, I was a little surprised by that. And Laura, let me start with you. I, who's, who, who's not getting the message out there? Do we, do we know who these people are? They're just not getting the message on this? I don't know that we know exactly who these people are, but I think that if you spend any time, uh, you know, unfortunately I have to, um, I, I take care of my sister and her medical issues. And so I have to like uh, run errands for her and go to the grocery store and go to um, pick up medication. And so I do see people around. I think that the stores have done a much better job and um, the pharmacies have done a much better job of outlining the six foot rule. But I do see a lot more people congregated around than I think the governor's probably comfortable with. And I, I just don't know how much is getting through to especially younger people. I just read an article um, as an example, and it wasn't here, but it happened in Texas, where 70 students from the University of, of Texas at Austin took a trip to Mexico for spring break and 44 of them came back with the virus. And it's like, right. you're not immune. And so I think a lot of people are just not getting that message. And I hope that younger people can step up and stay home also. Sure. Crystal, don't want to make you speak for your age group. That's not a fair thing to do, but okay, there is I a bit- Follow me the token millennial. It's totally <laughs> fine. Well, I would love you, <laughs> partly. Um, honestly, you know, Laura makes an interesting point and a good point is just lots and lots of young people not getting the message on this. And I've often thought maybe there's just not a lot of leadership out there in millennial world that, you know, meaning maybe like a celebrity or someone to say, look, guys, this is serious. Let's, let's be a little care more careful here. What's your sense of that when it comes to younger people? What's going yeah, on so about three weeks ago, they did ask social media influencers, being the industry that I'm in, they asked social media influencers like Kylie Jenner, um, you know, Derek Huff, some of the celebrities that you're talking about to encourage people to stay um, indoors. Um, I, I will admit, like, I, I'm seeing a completely different story when it comes to millennials. And if anything, we're all freaking out. Um, okay. And, you know, back to that study that you were talking about, I, I did dig into that to see the source of, of the study. I'm sorry, it was a marketing agency. It was not only a marketing agency that put that together, but it was a data agency that uses GPS data to compile information for marketing insights. And to me, that study was actually absolutely incorrect because we are a heavy drive city to get from places like Artesia to Hobbs and Roswell to Jow. And so of course the GPS data shows us moving because that's naturally how we get um, from point A to point B for our essentials. And so not only do I have a problem with that study, um, you know, for as, far, for as long as I know, I don't think it's actually really difficult for a lot of millennials to actually be indoors because not only do we understand technology well enough where we were already FaceTiming our friends if we miss them, but at right. the same time too, like we can't afford to get out. You know, the joke that I've been using this entire um, COVID-19 is don't touch your face and don't touch your 401k because millennials, we don't have a 401k at this point, even if we tried to. So, you know, a lot of, and not only that, but we've got our student loans, uh, we've got the education that we've got to deal with. Um, so I think the millennial generation has no choice to stay indoors because our financial pictures right now, it may be better than some, but it definitely isn't better than the generations above us. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Giovanna, you know, interestingly, um, the six foot rule thing, you can, when you go, when I go to the store, it is like, you might as well not even have said it. People are like in each other's faces, they're right next to each other. My local store here downtown, however, has taken an extra step. They're having their cashiers wear masks and gloves. And also there's a big plexiglass shield right in front of each cashier. And I'm wondering what you're seeing out there. When I, I go to different places, I don't see a whole lot of protections for workers out there. What's your sense of that? Um, well, to be honest, I have not been going out that much. <laughs> been, answer. I've been really? staying home. Hashtag stay home. But um, when when my husband has gone out to our local grocery store in Knob Hill, um, the workers are definitely wearing protection. Um, 
However, I will say when we're out at the, like, you know, we take the dog for a walk, we go to the park, we have a beautiful great big park near us, which we're so fortunate to have. Um, but the other day uh, we were there and literally a half a dozen older people, like, like over 60 for sure, um, got out of their vehicles and all exclaimed very loudly what a beautiful park it was. They clearly, you know, weren't from the neighborhood. They were driving in to, to visit a park, which under other circumstances would be awesome and wonderful. Um, but right now, like doing a big drive to go to uh, another park with like six friends, um, they got picnic stuff out of their truck. They were setting up. Um, so clearly that message is not getting through, you know, to them. Mm -hmm. um, I, as far as, but back to your question about workers. Yeah, I haven't really seen a whole lot. Um, we were at a health clinic last week because my son broke his arm, which was really bad timing, but oh. <laughs> we were there and the, no, like the, the receptionists were wearing protective, you know, cover, but like other people weren't. Um, so I think it's a real mix. Um, certainly I've heard that just in the last week or in the last few days, more and more people are wearing protective um, covering, but I, I haven't seen too much of it. Yeah, interesting. Let's talk about schools and schooling and education. Uh, obviously we know the schools are closed for the rest of the year. Probably a good idea, you know, it's wise to do that from a public health standpoint. And I don't think most folks would disagree with that. And in fact, starting Monday in partnership with APS, we're going to be starting something here at New Mexico NMPBS called APS at Home. It's going to be education for elementary aged kids um, every Monday through Friday, starting at 8 a.m. We're very excited to have that partnership with APS. But let me ask you this, Chris, I'll start with you. You have some youngins there in the home. What's what's you? How do how do you keep the learning curve going with your kids in this in a situation like this? What, what's what's been your plan? Uh, I don't know if you know of a mom that has the same type of insight. Um, you know, much appreciated. You know, uh, we talked about independent schools in a previous New Mexico in focus, and I, I I came from the perspective of being a parent with a kiddo in an independent school. And luckily, um, we're really grateful at Bosque where um, our kiddo actually, or our, our, the faculty, being the staff and the faculty, already use Google Classroom. So my perception's a little bit different, but that also um, is, you know, I'm very much aware with um, the communities at large that sometimes children just don't have access to education at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think from human nature, we all have to think about what is our priority at the moment right now. Um, and I think that the Department of Education and um, APS, uh, larger school institutions, um, are being really forgiving at this point, and that's the right thing to do. And, and I wanna stress the word forgiving because the amount of pressures that's currently on the individual and the family owner, the family, um, the, the, the decision maker within the family, there's so much that's being thrown at them right now, such as unemployment, such as their own personal and physical health, such as you know the interest and well-being of their elders, because we all know New Mexico has multiple generations living in one home. And so at this point, um, it's unfortunate that education has to be um, a, a something that we take a step back on. Um, but going back to the question of, you know, what do you do to encourage your kids? I think it goes back to remembering that there has to be a love of learning to begin with in the home. Um, right. When kids cry and are upset about going to school in the first place, you know, it's a challenge for us as mothers and, and, and also fathers, right? to change the mindset and say, no, school's not just about learning, school's about interacting with fellow students, interacting with mentors and teachers and, and getting out in the world and discovering the places uh, in history. And so I think one of the things that, um, you know, educators just do on a normal basis that now we as parents have to absolutely remind ourselves is we have to have a love of learning so that way we can we can discipline our kids in a non-disciplinary way to do school in the home. So. Right. I've seen on Facebook parents reporting lots of kids are crushing books right now, Giovanna. They're like turning into readers and that comes from, you know, what you see in the home from your parents, all that kind of stuff. What are you guys doing at the, at the Rossi household? <laughs> yeah, we're doing a lot of reading. Um, a lot of chess, 
We ah. are, uh, so I have an eight-year-old and an uh, almost 11-year-old, and <clears throat> they are, you know, we're really trying to encourage uh, as, as little screen time as possible, although there still is a lot of screen time because that's just the nature of like online learning and, and communicating. There's a lot of different things going on that they're not used to, like um, hanging out with friends on online, right? Just in, just with their friends. Um, so they're they're learning different things. Uh, we're doing. My daughter is has read like the entire series of um, uh, what's it called, the um, Land of Stories, and right. so she just blew through that. Um, we're doing different kinds of things. I think the message that I want to share is just to um, to take pressure off of parents to have to um, implement a very, you know, structured learning curriculum at home that is, uh, first of all, it takes up a lot of time to manage that <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and oversee it and even just delegate it. That's a right. whole other job. Um, but of course, you know, we have to do that. I'm glad you mentioned the APS um, PBS partnership because my kids will be sitting down my eight-year-old at 10 a.m. on Monday, my 10-year-old uh, is gonna sit down at 11 a.m. And, and do those uh, things Monday through Friday. I think that's great, provide some structure. Um, however, we are doing things like going outside and like watching the squirrel that just appeared in our backyard and like documenting, you know, what is the squirrel doing today? Like learning about the squirrel. So I would encourage different kinds of learning. It doesn't have to go. be just academic right now. In fact, I would just kind of toss that out, um, except for the APS piece that, that we are gonna participate in. We're doing a lot more kind of creative offline stuff. I love it. Laura, I'm gonna hold you off on this one since you don't have kids, I won't, won't make it. Well, I, am on, I am on a board of a, of a charter school. I, I do care go. about education, but no, I, I don't have the privilege and I respect all of you very much for having that. It's all right. We'll be back with this group to talk about COVID and businesses in just a moment. So many repercussions of the COVID-19 outbreak, it's just hard to fathom and think about. One thing that uh, a lot of people here in the state are worried about is with the stay-at-home order and the social and physical distancing that we're all trying to model, what happens to those people who might be in domestic violence or in abuse situations or at risk for it as this goes on? So we wanted to sit down with some folks from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence to talk about the work they're doing to try to keep these people safe and uh, get them the resources they need during a difficult time. I'm joined by two staff members from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Pam Wiseman is director, Gwen Cadis is policy coordinator. Thank you for joining us today on New Mexico Thank in Focus. You. Why is it so problematic to have stay-at-home orders for people for whom home is not a safe place because of abuse? Well, people um, that are abused tend to be isolated by their abuser to begin with. And so this furthering of that isolation can be really dangerous for someone who is kind of stuck at home with their abuser. Um, probably the kids are around too. And so the abuser might have um, put some limits on, you know, keep the kids quiet or whatever it may be. And um, it, it's just a very dangerous situation. Victims can't reach out for help often because the abuser is there. Uh, so that makes it a really dangerous situation. I'm guessing unemployment, which is, of course, skyrocketing right now, is exacerbating that. Absolutely. That, that's a huge risk factor. And you are a statewide agency. You work with a lot of local resource centers. What are you hearing right now from various communities and the challenges they're facing? So uh, there are about 30 uh, domestic violence organizations around New Mexico, and we work with all of them. And uh, we're in contact almost daily with them, and the challenges are enormous and like nothing anyone really ever expected. The questions that are coming up, the barriers, 
are, are really uh, surprising, I think, to lots of people. One of the barriers, um, and it's a barrier that most programs never had, uh, is they don't have enough food. And in general, these programs, which are shelters, have not had that issue because communities are really generous and they bring food and they have food banks and the same with supplies. But now uh, food is harder to come by, supplies are harder to come by and people aren't going out. So they're suffering from uh, shortages of both food and supplies, especially cleaning supplies, which, which they need. Is there a danger because of that, that people might leave the shelters and go back to their abusive situations? I think that's always a risk and that's a fear. Uh, I think the main fear that our programs have is what happens if someone comes into their shelter and is positive or presumed to be positive? And then uh, what happens to all the other people who were in the shelter? What happens to the staff? So we've been working really closely with the state, with CYFD, with Department of Health, to arrange uh, hotels and alternate locations for people, but it's really been logistically hard to do because we, for the last you know 35 years, have never had to do anything like this before. How are you and other agencies around the state adapting your services to try and meet the needs of victims where they are? Yeah, I, I, I can answer this when, um, in uh, several ways. For example, many programs have services, not just for victims and their children, but also for people who commit domestic violence. They're ordered by the courts to, to uh, uh, attend groups. And so they are doing Zoom meetings. They are doing uh, phone calls, uh, sometimes just with individual people because not everybody around the state has internet access or has a computer or even has a smartphone. So they're, they're doing that kind of work. And that's really important because uh, it's even more critical now that people who have committed domestic violence ha also have some uh, support, someone to talk to, someone who's kind of keeping track of what's happening. So that's really important. Um, they're doing, they're, they're, their shelters are open, their programs are open, the 24-hour uh, hotlines are open. They are all still doing the work. They might just be doing it differently. What You brought up um, the court might order certain things. What about court services right now? Because can you get a restraining order? Does it even mean anything to get a restraining order right now? Well, it does mean something still. And yes, people can get the restraining orders at this time. Um, we're working very closely with the courts and with legal services to try to keep that avenue open for victims to use when they need to use that. Um, so we're assisting on the phone with um, complete, with letting victims know about petitions and questions that they may have um, there are some barriers still to that, um, especially when people cannot get out of their house to go sign a petition. So we're working on those kinds of issues right now. What can a victim expect if they call you or, or one of your organizations that you work with if they're trying to get out of a situation right now? Like what, what, is, what happens? What's the process now? So what happens is, um, first of all, somebody will assess their immediate safety and get them help if they need immediate assistance. That's, that's very important. Um, then what will happen is people, um, advocates are on the phone uh, who will talk with that person about different options that may be available and then see what that person wants to, to make use of at this point. Sometimes people just need to talk Sometimes people need emergency shelter when, when they're in danger. If it's risky to make a phone call, are there other ways they can communicate? So there, there is the National Domestic Violence Hotline offers chat services and text services so that they don't have to talk and possibly be overheard by the abuser. Um, we can put those numbers on our website as well. Um, so they can also do online help or reporting, right? 
They can, they can actually get on a website to the National Domestic Violence Hotline and they can chat with somebody on that website. And, what, and okay. then, I'm sorry, the Go hotline ahead. can refer them to whoever their local program is if they need those kinds of services, shelter, advocacy, counseling. What they about, also oh, go, go ahead, to Pam. Our, to our website, uh, nmcadv.org, which is New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence, uh, org. And on our website, we have a map and a list of every program in the state so they can uh, find out which program is nearest to them and, uh, and get a contact uh, there too. And we also have lots of other help, just basic information about domestic violence, about services for children, uh, lot, lots of lots of I think helpful information for for victims and for the community also. What about people who may not speak English? Right. So uh, we have uh, we have funding through the Crime Victims uh, Reparation Commission. And they uh, provide a language line. Uh, we fu they fund the they give us the money and we pay for the language line, uh, and people will respond in virtually every language. I'm not sure if there really are any that there may be a few, mm -hmm. but but in almost every language because obviously there are a lot of people who are uh, not don't speak English, and uh, it's really important that we be able to serve everyone in the community and not just, you know, those people who speak the one language. So if they call a hotline, they can be connected to someone they, who can speak in their yes. language. Okay. They have access to a, a, a crisis line that will do that. Um, France just announced a really big program to assist domestic violence victims. It includes thousands of hotel bookings I think the government is paying for. They're setting up assistance points at places like supermarkets and pharmacies where we can still go even if we're sheltering in place. Do you think any of that's feasible here? It's definitely feasible and we've been speaking uh, regularly with uh, representatives from CYFD and from the governor's office. So uh, we're hoping to have something definitive tomorrow to let our programs know about. But uh, yes, those things are feasible. They're happening, plans are underway. Um, and we've been really uh, impressed with uh, the level of thought and analysis that's gone into that and the understanding of the special needs of domestic violence victims that uh, people working on this problem have really shown. And so we were, um, we, we were really pleased about that. What is needed right now to address this as we continue with this crisis and restrictions on movement? We need to have people aware that the services are available and that um, if you hear something maybe in your neighbor's house or you're walking by somewhere, uh, please call 911 because that person might not be able to. Uh, also, our programs are really in need of, of supplies, cleaning supplies, um, food. You know, we had a situation where one of the shelters went to get milk and they were restricted to getting one gallon um, when they have a shelter with maybe seven children in it. So those kinds of things are really needed right now by the programs. Okay, well, thank you all so much for talking about this. We'll put this information on our website as well. Thank yes, you. thank you for giving us this, this opportunity. We appreciate it. As we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, non-essential businesses have been told they need to close down during the time being with the COVID-19 outbreak. And that has been devastating to businesses and employees across the state. Our line panel is back to talk about uh, some of the repercussions of that and what the state government, other agencies are offering to help people affected by this, really just to look at how we're doing as a state and what the repercussions are going to be down the road. There's now talk of potentially $2 billion hole in the budget just from the COVID-19 outbreak. There's going to be a lot of repercussions of that for months to come. So here's host Gene Grant and the line. New Mexico is staring a recession right in the face as more businesses close, jobs are lost, 
But more importantly, tax revenue is disappearing quickly. The federal government passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, as you all know. And New Mexico, we have our own plans here, including here in the city. We'll talk about that in a, in a quick second. But Crystal Ciarza from Ciarza Social Digital Media, let me ask you first, right off the bat, it's hard to get a feel for, I, I could imagine, what all levels of businesses are doing to struggle through this, but what's your general sense to get us going about how businesses are handling, handling this at this point? If you want to talk, so there's two answers to this question. Professionally, many of them already have their ducks in a row and are preparing for um, a financial crisis up until the end of June. From a personal level, everything sucks big time. And not only is it such a vulnerable, embarrassing time, but not only, you know, we we're running into a lot of businesses, especially in mine, where uh, we have people being laid off, um, not not specifically in my end, but um, with some of our clients, like they're laying off people. Um, sometimes people forget that small business owners are human too, and that's not an easy thing to do um, emotionally. Um, so not only that, but then business owners are having to, now with the CARES Act, uh, business owners have uh, opportunities and capabilities of asking for help um, when it comes to unemployment. So. Um, not only are they telling people that they're laid off, file for unemployment, but the business owners themselves have to file for unemployment. Um, it's a really humbling time for everybody, a very vulnerable time. Um, and even though it's so frustrating where um, the numbers of uh, files and papers that we have to, to put together to just simply ask for aid, um, there are some glimmers of hope that have given us um, a, a positive outlook, such as um, City of Albuquerque and their micro lending loan for pe for uh, five people and under. Um, obviously, the disaster loan SBA um, Act, uh, the seven A partnership with uh, the Payroll um, Protection Act. Um, uh, there are other New Mexico um, Economic Development doing their um, loan guarantee platform. There's a lot of help that's out there for small business owners. But right. I would say that um, you know, to kind of wrap up my thought is uh, don't forget that the small business owner is, is as vulnerable as the employee. So. That's true. Laura Sanchez, uh, let's go to the employee here for a quick sec. We had Bill McCamley uh, on with my colleague Matt Grubbs uh, last week. And the sheer amount of people looking for unemployment insurance now is through the roof. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. You factor in also John Arthur Smith saying we could be facing anywhere from a 1.5 to $2 billion budget shortfall right now. How do all these things meet up in the middle of the road here? It's gonna to be tough for workers as well. It is, it's, it's extremely difficult right now. It's really depressing for anybody. And like, like all of us probably were following the news closely. I think we all are used to gathering information and educating ourselves on what's going on. And so it's so incredibly depressing to um, every day sort of see the numbers of cases rising and then the uh, jobless uh, numbers rising also. I think as of this taping, there was a report this morning that something like 6.6 .6 million people were seeking um, unemployment benefits uh, nationwide. Right. And that's mm -hmm. just really gonna have widespread impact on people and, and on small businesses, I think, as was already shared um, for the, I think for the rest of the year, there's some predictions that we're in a recession that's gonna last potentially a couple of years. So I think mm -hmm. that um, I'm I'm glad that there's uh, efforts going on at the local level. I think those will help some of the small businesses. But I think the other thing, you know, I'm incredibly lucky in my household um, to have a job that I'm that I, you know, I'm still getting paid, and so I'm doing what I can to support local businesses by um, not cooking <laughs> and going out to eat, uh, or not going out to eat, but ordering in, and even just doing Grubhub or DoorDash is helping people who are, um, you know, in that uh, in that kind of job where you're doing deliveries. So that's sort of my my way of trying to share. You know, same here too. I, I, I've bumped up my amount of giving for the drivers as well when I get delivery, just, you know, yep. it just it just feels different to have like $2 for a delivery tip. Doesn't feel right. You know I what agree. I mean? Better than I that. I agree, you know, and I just, I, you know, I picked up four growlers the other day at my favorite brewery, um, you know, didn't have them all that night, but I felt like I needed to have some variety at home. Um, and that was sort of my way of contributing. And, it, and the people that are left at that brewery who are, you know, mostly the kitchen workers and the managers that are preparing food themselves and, you know, providing curbside delivery, it made a huge difference and they were so grateful. And so anything that I can do on that front is important. And I think those of us who feel like we just have no control, 
we are still able to provide in terms of um, putting dollars back into the economy and at least helping the small businesses that are still out there functioning. That's right. You know, Giovanna, I saw on Facebook yesterday that the Cooperage is closing for good. I mean, you're talking one of the standard bearer Albuquerque restaurants for, I don't know, 30 years, something like that. It's really heartbreaking when you think about it. But I say that in this context, it's not as if the economy was horrible before this happened. It wasn't like we were going down the drain. Does that give you hope that if this thing clears at some point, we can come roaring back as the president likes to say in all of his briefings that it's it's just a matter of getting going again. You, do you agree with that sentiment? Well, I think there's, I, you know, it, it's a really big question right now and, and we're just gonna have to wait and see what, what all shakes out. But I think that it's going to be long-term. I think there's gonna be some immediate pain happening with some long-term programs and commitment to getting people back on their feet certainly in the family-friendly business organization that I started and, and now it, it, it's off and running and our COO did a great uh, video and, and uh, information segment yesterday about resources for small businesses um, and to get through hard economic times. Um, and that's actually, if I can give it to you, nmfamilyfriendlybusiness.org. You can go and, and get lots of resources there and information for small businesses. But I think if we look, it's going to be really interesting to see how our family-friendly businesses fare uh, through this. I know some of them are already facing really hard um, decisions about layoffs and things. Uh, but I think that the, the notion of being a family-friendly business where you really put your employees first and and also your profit, right? It's not saying one or the other. It's saying we want to be profitable and we want to take care of our workers. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they fare because they already had some of the policies in place that are so important now as far as like flexibility in your schedule, working from home, paid leave, paid sick leave, all of those things. Um, are, are things that we've been working really closely with um, 280 businesses in New Mexico already on. So um, so that's something to watch as well. And I don't mean to cut off Giovanna, but I want to give the stark reality behind this because my organization is a gold family friendly um, for the first time this year, which is really exciting. What at the end of the day, yeah, like at the end of the day, it's really difficult for us to take care of our employees if we can't even take care of ourselves as small business owners, you know. And so it's a, it's a hard challenge to say, is it health insurance or is it payroll? And and I'm totally honest, like it sucks. And, right now for yeah, I totally hear that. And sometimes the best way to take care of your employees is to help them access resources for, uh, or actually laying them off and helping them access the resources for um, unemployment compensation things, right? Like that, that is how some of our family-friendly businesses are helping their employees. It's just- Unfortunately, we're gonna wrap up. Unfortunately, we're right, we were right hard at time. I wanna thanks to you all, and I want to see you in person soon. It's just gonna happen not too soon, but I wanna thank you for your time this week for sure. Thank you all for coming. Thanks, Another impact of the COVID-19 outbreak that you may not have thought about has an environmental impact. Uh, the EPA recently rolled back some regulations which basically allows for greater, greater uh, pollution possibilities. That's countrywide. Here in New Mexico, we wanted to find out what that means and what state regulators think about this and uh, how they're responding to it. So our land correspondent, Laura Pascas, was able to connect via Zoom with the New Mexico Environment Department Secretary James Kenney to talk about what his department is doing with these new regulations, again, rolling back uh, restrictions around pollution during the COVID-19 outbreak. The Environmental Protection Agency is changing how it regulates polluters during this pandemic. The agency relaxed restrictions recently at the behest of the petroleum industry. Correspondent Laura Pascas talked with Environment Secretary James Kenney about how the changes affect New Mexico. Secretary James Kenney, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the virtual studio. So last week, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced what it called a discretion policy for COVID-19 pandemic conditions. 
And I understand you're having a call with the EPA later this week, but when did state regulators first find out about this rule and, and how might it affect the state of New Mexico? Well, first, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here and being able to talk to you uh, remotely. Um, the, the memo that you're speaking of, it's not an EPA rule, it's a memo, it's guidance. Um, we found out at the Environment Department, I think like many environmental regulators, uh, the day it came out. So there was not a, a large um, opportunity for us to weigh in on the shaping of that. Uh, but that memo basically provides enforcement discretion in the way EPA is going to look at um, violations of civil laws or environmental laws during the public health emergency, um, the COVID-19 crisis. So that's what it's doing. Um, how it's going to affect New Mexico is actually um, an interesting question. There's, I think, various degrees in which it's going to affect us, but here, here at the Environment Department, um, we have a lot of those flexibilities. EPA actually has a lot of the flexibilities that are put forward in that memo um, without the memo even existing. So um, we're gonna continue to assure that New Mexicans have safe food, safe water, uh, infectious waste is managed. And then we're also going to continue to look at uh, making sure that the public health emergency caused by COVID is not aggravated by additional public health emergencies caused by non-compliance with environmental laws. So for those of our viewers who might not be familiar with these, can you describe what laws these, uh, this applies to and kind of what types of facilities might be affected? Sure, and I'll make that really specific to New Mexico because I think that would benefit the viewers. So here in New Mexico, oil and gas industry is regulated for their air emissions, um, for their water as well. But beyond that, our drinking water um, has regulations that apply to it in terms of making sure it's safe. So it's not just industry, it's also the public services we depend upon to ensure that uh, we, have, we have safe water and, and um, things like that. So um, that's one area. You often hear uh, folks from the environment department, including myself, talking about legacy waste in the state of New Mexico. Those legacy wastes are either regulated by Superfund, the CERCLA law um, in which the Environment Department implements with EPA, or regulated by what we call corrective action, meaning there are active sites that are undergoing um, abatement or some kind of remedial activities. Those are also covered, and we're waiting for additional guidance from EPA on that. So it, it really does affect every industry and every service here in New Mexico. So in that new policy, the notice that, that was sent out, it says that the federal agency, the EPA, won't penalize companies or facilities that don't comply with monitoring and reporting requirements, but they add that the agency does expect operators of public water systems to continue to ensure the safety of our drinking water supplies. Are we at a point where compliance with these laws are voluntary? Um, that's a good question. During the public health emergency and the way EPA issued that guidance, uh, it's certainly the standing position that those laws are always running and that there are policies outside of the one that was just issued that account for what to do when um, noncompliance occurs and there's outside factors like force majeure provisions. Um, like act, uh, natural acts, hurricanes, earthquakes, things like that. We're, we're not unaccustomed to emergencies interrupting our ability to assure compliance. Um, so we're going to continue to make sure that laws are followed to the best we can, but we have to be very candid that, you know, here in New Mexico, we expect that the, while we're doing all these social distancing and all these efforts on with uh, under the public health order that the governor and um, Secretary Kunkel from Department of Health issued, um, we have to be realistic that there will be disruptions in, in services, environmental services, environmental compliance. Um, and that's just gonna be something we're gonna have to deal with. Like I said, we have the policies and procedures in place outside of that memo that just seems to collect them all and put it out there more affirmatively. So even in the best of times, um, the New Mexico Environment Department has 
traditionally or often been underfunded and certainly understaffed. And now your department has the additional um, burden of, of people having to work from home. I'm curious how this uh, policy or, or move from EPA affects NMED's ability to, to carry out its regulatory duties across the state. Yeah, again, another good question. And let me break it down by numbers. Um, of the 525 NMED employees, 100% of us are working from home now. And that's in line with the governor's public health order, um, as I mentioned earlier. That, since we have 100% of people working from home, let me further break it down and tell you that 25% of our workforce is actively working on COVID-19 issues, making sure our food, our drinking water, our places of employment, those essential services, healthcare industry are, are protecting their workers because we have our, the OSHA program at the Environment Department. We're also the group that would look at infectious waste and making sure that that's managed properly, as well as wastewater. Um, so when we, you know, flush our toilets and we get rid and chemical plants are treating their wastewater, we're, we're that group as well. Um, so 25% of our employees are working on COVID-19 directly, and then about 75% of our employees, the balance of us, are working to ensure that, you know, we're uh, developing our methane rules, working on um, PFAS issues, working with respect to the contamination that I mentioned about legacy contamination, permits, um, and then compliance. But we, we, again, have to be realistic. We're not putting our people in the field um, as much because we're practicing social distancing and doing things remotely as best as we can to stop the spread. In the EPA's notice that they sent out to the public, one of the things they said is during this time, um, the public can um, make complaints on violations um, for facilities that they see polluting. And certainly at this moment in time, we don't want anyone out um, patrolling their communities. But if people do, um, if people do have concerns about pollution in their communities, um, what should they be doing? And, and what should Mexicans, what should we all be doing to be helping the environment department protect the resources we have all around us? Yeah, and thank you for that question. The importance of um, keeping our eyes and ears open during this time and, and see if we see something that's a problem or suspected to be a problem, report it to the Environment Department. Um, we'll be through this and we'll, we'll be on the other side of it where we can go back and investigate. Um, and we will do that. We'll, we'll devote our time and, and resources into investigating those complaints. We're still receiving complaints. We're still investigating complaints. Um, you may not see us out in the field. You may not see the state vehicle driving through your community, but rest assured, we're sending letters. We're asking for information. We're noting where we're going to go back to. Um, what your viewers can do right now that would greatly help is ensuring that we don't flush anything down the toilet that um, shouldn't be in a toilet. Uh, so that includes wipes and um, paper towels and things like that that we might be using more frequently in our house to clean surfaces and disinfect. And with that, with things like that, you know, practice our good behaviors now while we're in COVID-19 so we can avoid those septic system issues in rural parts of the, of the state, as well as those municipal overflows um, or just um, Clogging up your own uh, plumbing system will cost you a, a, a heavy, a hefty amount of um, of money right now, and it's hard to get people to come out to your house. So, don't flush anything that shouldn't be in a toilet. Continue to use your your tap water; it's safe. You don't have to hoard bottled water. Um, continue to support takeout from our local restaurants. Uh, that's very important as well. Um, that's a good place to avoid the grocery stores. Um, when you need to bring food into your home. So um, those types of things are all good practices. Okay, so we will practice good behavior. Secretary Kenny, thank you so much for joining us and thank you to everyone who's working so hard right now. We appreciate it. Thank you for, the, for uh, letting us on and, and share this important information.
As always, host Gene Grant has some great thoughts to take you into the weekend and the week ahead, and this week is no different. He's got a reminder here again about that APS at Home program we talked about earlier. Go to NewMexicoPBS.org for more information. Also, he mentions a Facebook Live we did this week about the city of Albuquerque and their uh, grant program to help micro-businesses, businesses with five employees or less. It's just one of the efforts being made to help make people whole during this tough economic time caused by this pandemic. We've got a lot more Facebook Lives in the works. Next week, we're looking at something about efforts to make masks. That's now being encouraged, not so much to protect yourself from getting COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus, but to protect others who are susceptible to it or immunocompromised, that sort of a thing. So uh, we hope you all stay safe, you stay healthy, and we will see you next week. Thanks again for tuning in and being patient with us as we bring you our New Mexico and Focus shows remotely. We'll be doing it this way for the foreseeable future. That's no doubt about that. Now, it's so easy to focus just on ourselves and our families during times like this. It's just human nature. We can get through this better by remembering others. And that's the spirit behind our collaboration with Albuquerque Public Schools. As I mentioned on this show, APS at Home will start airing K-5 through lesson plans on Channel 5.1 starting on Monday morning. They run from 8 a.m. to noon with a dedicated YouTube page to help you out as well. You can learn more at NewMexicoPBS.org. Now, if you own a small business in Albuquerque, you might have heard about the micro grants available through the Albuquerque Economic Development Department. I had a focus on New Mexico Facebook Live conversation about it earlier this week with Department Director Cynthia Alonio. As we make our way through this, watch for more opportunities to tell your personal story in a focus on New Mexico Facebook Live event. We'd love to talk to you. I would love to talk to folks next week, maybe talking about masks. So you're making some? I want to hear how you're doing that. So thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. See you next week in focus.